I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derosh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to discern the patterns of life from the most excellent text that is before us, this book that we call the Bible. Early on in this experiment, we looked at various ways that we can look at scripture that can help us to get deeper into the text. And one of the ways that I mentioned was to examine the text as if it were a novel, to recognize that what is being said is intentional, and that the text contains within itself certain conventions that, when recognized, it can direct our attention to things that we may not have necessarily noticed before. In the tools that are available for storytelling, there is one that's harder to pull off than the rest. And one of the reasons that this method of narrative is so difficult to accomplish is because it relies heavily on misdirection. It relies on deception. It convinces the audience that one thing is happening and that the story is headed in one direction. And then it pulls the rug out from under the feet of the reader, hearer, viewer, and it reveals in its last moments that something completely different is occurring. We know this as the twist ending. And we're familiar with this convention as, as, as it's one that modern audiences have been exposed to repeatedly. M. Night Shyamalan, however you pronounce his name, he uses this convention in many of his movies. Things like The Sixth Sense, The Village, Unbreakable. Each of these movies reveals at the end that there's something else going on that was not apparent at the beginning or even through the majority of the movie. Other movies, such as Fight Club, A Beautiful Mind, pull off the twist ending by revealing at the end that one of the major characters was simply a figment of the protagonist's imagination. Other movies, such as The Usual Suspects, The Prestige, Memento, they end with the revelation that one of the main characters was not revealing the whole truth of their existence. Something in their character was being hidden from the audience as much as from everyone else in the movie. Nearly every episode of the TV series Lost tried to pull off a twist ending of some sort, and the fact that the entire show was then revealed at the end to be itself a deception should not be lost on those who have seen it. Then there is the reveal at the end of the deeper topics, such as The Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader reveals that he is, in fact, Luke's father. This revelation shifts the story from one of simply good versus evil to the crazy dynamic that can be found in this thing that we call family. And just how close will the son follow in the footsteps of his father? Uh, one of the things that we discover in this type of movie is that when we are left with a twist ending, we should recognize that one of the topics under discussion in the content of the movie is deception. The deception of others or the deception of oneself told through the deceptive storytelling mechanism. So what does this have to do with scripture? What does it have to do with the story of Jacob? Well, the story of Jacob up to this point is just that. If we ended the story of Jacob with the end of this Parsha, we would be left with the reeling feeling that we get when the twist is revealed at the end of any other narrative. Once again, our familiarity with the story and what comes next lessens the impact for us. But 
let's look at the story and pretend for a bit that we don't know what's going to happen. We know Jacob at this point in our reading. We know that he's not necessarily the greatest of guys, but that he was the one who's received all of the blessings from the beginning. We know that he was prophesied to be the recipient of blessing of Abraham. But if we read the story closely, we find that clues are dropped throughout that reveal that a twist is coming. So let's read this Parsha and then discuss this twist and this deception and how we can see the text giving us clues needed to put it together before you actually get to the end. Genesis 28.10-29.30 through 29.30. And Yaakov went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came upon a place, and he stopped over for the night, for the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place, and he put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and he saw a ladder set up on the earth, and its top reached to the heavens. And he saw messengers of Elohim going up and coming down on it. And see, Hashem stood above it and said, I am Hashem, Elohim of Abraham your father, and the Elohim of Yitzhak. The land on which you are lying, I give it to you and your seed. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall break forth to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all of the clans of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your seed. And see, I am with you, and shall guard you wherever you go, and shall bring you back to this land, for I am not going to leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, Truly Hashem is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of Elohim, and this is the gate of the heavens. And Yaakov rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put up at his head and set it up as a standing column and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Beit-el. However, the name of that city had been Luz previously. And Yaakov made a vow, saying, See, Elohim is with me and has kept me in this way that I am going, and has given me bread to eat and a garment to put on. When I have returned to my father's house in peace, and Hashem has been my Elohim, then this stone which I have set as a standing column shall be Elohim's house, and of all that you give me I shall certainly give a tenth to you. And Yaakov moved on and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and he saw three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a large stone was on the well's mouth. And all the flocks would be gathered there. Then they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So Yaakov said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Levan, son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so he said to them, Is he well? And they said, Well, and see his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And he said, See, it is still high day, not the time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We are not allowed until all the flock are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we shall water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to be when Yaakov saw Rachel, the daughter of Levan, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Levan, his mother's brother, that Yaakov went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Levan, his mother's brother. And Yaakov kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And when Yaakov told Rachel that he was his father's relative and that he was Rivka's son, she ran and she told her father. And it came to be when Levan heard the report about Yaakov, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And then he told Levan all these matters. And Levan said to him, You are indeed my bone and my flesh. 
and he stayed with him for a new moon. Then Laban said to Yaakov, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for naught? Let me know. What should your wages be? And Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. And Yaakov loved Rachel, so he said, Let me serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Yaakov served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days, because of the love that he had for her. Then Yaakov said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are completed, and let me go into her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place, and he made a feast. And it came to be in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Yaakov, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a female servant. And in the morning he came to be that see, it was Leah. So he said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not done this way in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and then we will give you this one too, for the service which you shall serve with me still another seven years. And Yaakov did so and completed her week. And then he gave him his daughter Rachel too as a wife. And Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a female servant. And he also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Afan still another seven years. So this parsha opens with Jacob escaping from his brothers out of fear of his brother's anger. And this man who had received the birthright double portion inheritance, as well as the blessing that gave him the authority over his family. He's running for his life with nothing. He was supposed to be rich and powerful, and yet as he runs, he has nothing, not even a pillow for his head or the money for a bride price. There's only one thing that he does have, the promise of more. He has the blessing of the family. So first of all, let's appreciate the dichotomy of Jacob's situation as he goes to Haran for a bride in comparison to the last time that someone went to Haran for a bride. Abraham's servant went with money and camels and rich gifts, and he went with a purpose, and he was blessed in his way, and he achieved his task, and then he simply left. But Jacob, on the other hand, he leaves for Haran, and whether he had anything when he left or not, we never see him with anything. He has no animals, he has no gifts, he has no power. That's okay, though. The very first thing that we read of happening to Jacob is that God meets Jacob, and he gives him the blessing of Abraham. This land I will give to you in your seed. Your seed will be as the dust of the earth. All of the clans of the earth will be blessed in you and your seed. I am with you, and I will ensure that what I have spoken comes to pass. Immediately we find that God himself is on Jacob's side to ensure his success. Jacob responds by honoring God in two ways. First, he erects a monument and he anoints the stone with oil. Jacob also then makes a vow. If God is truly with me and will ensure that I have food and clothing, then I will give a tenth of everything that you give me back. Now for a moment, let's think forward. And if you guard me and provide my food and clothing, my bare needs for existence. Now this idea of food and clothing being provided is one that's found throughout Scripture, but perhaps the most meaningful for us is found in Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, 25-34, it says, Because of this I say to you, do not worry about your life and what you shall eat or drink, or about your body and what you shall put on. 
Is not life more than the food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the heavens, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into storehouses, yet your heavenly Father does feed them. Are you not worth more than they? And which of you by worrying is able to add one cubit to his lifespan? So why do you worry about clothing? Note well the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I say to you that not even Solomon in all his honor was not dressed like one of these. But if Elohim so clothes the grass of the field which exists today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these the nations seek for, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these shall be added to you. Do not then worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow shall have its own worries. Each day has enough evil of itself. What was the promise that Jacob had just received? God had told them that I will watch over you and I will bless you. Your present circumstances, presumably without food or a change of clothing, don't matter. I will build you in a kingdom for my name and my purposes, a kingdom of God, if you will. And Jacob agrees, okay, I will seek your kingdom as well. In fact, I will name this place after you as a seed of that kingdom. I will put a tenth of everything that would normally be considered mine back into the building of this kingdom. And this is the truth that our Messiah points out in Matthew 6. If you follow me and put your focus on me and not on your circumstances, I will take care of those circumstances. Now, if we return to what we were examining before, and if we understand the words of God here as we normally tend to understand them, then the rest of Jacob's existence will be blessed. He will no longer need to worry about what will happen. He will get everything he needs and more. And that's how chapter 29 begins. Jacob finds success. He arrives in Haran and he goes to the place where everyone has to go daily, the place where you meet the inhabitants of the city. He goes to the well, the place where Abraham's servant had first met his mother. And at the well, he talks to the men in the city and he asks about his uncle Laban. Do you know him? Yes. Is he well? He is. In fact, that's his girl right over there. Immediate success. The daughter of my mother's brother. The first thing that we read of Rachel is that she is a shepherdess. They have a shared interest. She's beautiful. She is the perfect girl. She is everything that Jacob wants in a woman. Heck, she is likely everything that any guy wants in a woman. Of the right family, beautiful, and with a shared interest. Surely God is watching out for me. Surely his hand is in this to ensure my success. Enter Laban, Rebekah's brother. When Jacob meets Laban, he tells Laban his story, and Laban responds with, Surely you are my flesh and bone. After hearing what Jacob had just done, he says, You are just like me, boy. Come and work for me and name your wages. Enter Leah, the older daughter. Not pretty, not desirable, not loved by Jacob says, I will work for you, Laban, for seven years in exchange for Rachel as my wife. Well, Laban says, you're, you're a better suitor than any of these locals. Sure thing. And so seven years passes in the blink of the eye, both for Jacob and for us, the reader. After seven years, Jacob goes and he asks for his wages, and Laban agrees and he throws a party. It's a wedding. Now, one of the things that we miss is that the word used for the feast that Laban throws in chapter 29 
is that it's based off of the Hebrew word for drink. Laban got him drunk. So Jacob marries and spends the first night with his wife, and then the bottom drops out. Up until now, it would seem as if God was blessing Jacob in everything that he did. He found Laban immediately. His daughter is the girl of his dreams. He successfully makes a deal for her hand in marriage. And the time has come to gather his blessing. And suddenly we realize that perhaps what's happening is not what we thought was happening. Now, it's common in the West to assume that having God on our side ensures success in whatever we do. It means that he will watch out for our interests and we will get our way. Perhaps having God go with you and protecting your way doesn't mean what we think it means. Because God does not give Jacob what he wants. He does not protect Jacob from being deceived and from having years of his life wasted on a woman that he himself did not want. If we'd been paying close attention to how the story as a narrative, we would have seen the clues of this betrayal. Just as in many of the movies that I mentioned in the opening, there are subtle clues in each one of them that there's something more going on. So too in this ancient story that predates any of these others by millennia, the way of telling of the story drops clues that something else is going on. The story is not primarily about what it would seem to be on the surface. If we read up to verse 22, we would think that the story is primarily about blessing and election, God's protection and his providence, God working out all events to favor those who are his. So how does the story reveal to us that something more is going on in the text than what appears to be happening on the surface? Well, one way is seen immediately. Jacob, this blessed man who has just received everything that should have been his brother's, is forced to use rock for a pillow. He has nothing, even though he's been blessed with goods. Next, when he gets to Haran, Jacob was blessed with authority, rulership, and honor. However, when he commands the men of Haran to move the stone from the well, they don't. It's Jacob himself who's forced to move the stone on his own. Instead of the woman, the future bride, being the one to water his animals, it's Jacob who finds himself watering the animals of Laban and Rebekah. He takes on the role of his mother from this previous story. And when Jacob meets Laban and tells him what has happened to him, Laban says, you are my flesh and bone. Oh, that should at least let us know that Laban is not an upright and honest guy. And then it tells us of two sisters, the daughters of Laban. One is loved, the other is not. All of the roles in the story, they're topsy-turvy, even the dynamics of Jacob's interaction with Levon's family. Jacob takes on the role of Isaac from the previous story as one passing on the blessing. Levon takes on the role of Rebekah, the parent who ensures that the blessing is given to the proper child. The two children who find themselves in the struggle of being favored, they're girls rather than boys. The older, not really desirable to look at, the younger, fair and beautiful. The firstborn daughter is unloved by the one giving the blessing, and the younger daughter is loved by the giver of blessing. Even the parent changing which child is to be blessed last minute. All of this culminating with the declaration of Laban. It is not done this way in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Every element of this story seems to be completely opposite from the story that came before. It's as if Jacob finds himself in a bizarro world where everything is backward from the way that he had previously known. 
all of these clues of the upside down nature of this story reveal to us that this story is not necessarily about blessing as it seems to be on the surface. There is a deeper truth, and that is Jacob's nature in his youth. In the end, though, we realize the story is about Jacob's deception. He began in a matter of deception. He will now, for the remainder of his life, find himself on the receiving end of deception. The deceiver will become the deceived over and over and over again. Back in the story of the flood, we caught our first glimpse of this truth. The people of the earth were corrupt, and they had corrupted the earth, and so God corrupted the earth in return. God gives people the desires of their hearts. And this creation that God has created for us in many ways is a mirror for us to see ourselves in. The thing that we see in others that we hate in many times and in many ways, it can reveal to us the same ways that we ourselves act similarly. This idea that God reveals the failings in our dealings with the world is one that is very central to Scripture. In Galatians 6-7, it says, Do not be led astray. Elohim is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Job 4-8 says, According to what I have seen, those who plow wickedness and sow sufferings reap the same. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Messiah in order for each one to receive according to what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Proverbs 26.27, Whoever digs a pit falls into it, and whoever rolls a stone, it turns back on him. Ezekiel 18.20, The being whose sins shall die, and the son shall not bear the crookedness of the father, nor the father bear the crookedness of the son. The righteousness of the righteous is upon himself, and the wrongness of the wrong is upon himself. Matthew 26.52 Then Yeshua said to him, Return your sword to its place, for all who take the sword shall die by the sword. And James 3.18 And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those scriptures that I just read you, they're just a small sampling of verses that explicitly state this truth in one form or another. Now, this does not account for the large number of examples that we read in Scripture of this very thing happening. I've mentioned two, but there are, there are hundreds more. Pharaoh, who killed the sons of the children of Israel, had his own son destroyed by the plague. The 250 men who wished to be set apart and present incense before God in the rebellion of Korah, they were treated as holy and were consumed by a fire that came out from the tabernacle. Achan, who took for himself what was under the ban, came under the ban himself and was destroyed in the same manner. David, who took another man's wife and killed her husband, had his own son killed and his wives taken by his sons. Ahab, who led so many astray through the appointing of false prophets, was led astray by false prophets to his death. Haman, who built a stick to display Mordecai's body on, had his own body displayed on that same stick. And on and on and on the examples go. I could spend the rest of our time together recounting examples of this truth in Scripture. But then you'd have nothing to do in your own studies. So I'm not going to do that. Perhaps even more than this story being a revelation of the truth of how God visits his perfectly meted out justice and vengeance, the story can be taken one step further. Perhaps the story is a revelation of the truth that judgment begins in the house of God. And when God enters into judgment with the world, he will begin with his own people. 1 Peter 4.17, because it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God, and if firstly from us, 
What is the end of those who do not obey the good news of Elohim? So where does the judgment of Jacob begin? In Bethel, in the house of God. As a member of God's house, judgment began with him. We as the people of God, we must recognize that a lot of what we experience from others can be the means that God is using to reveal to us our own faults. Part of being aware as the people of God is not simply being aware of the text or what the text says, but also being aware of those around us and the ways in which they bother us. Because being aware of our own faults and failures and dealing with ourselves first, because this idea of judgment beginning in the house of God, it applies to the individual. Judgment must begin within ourselves. Matthew 7, 3-5 says, And why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but not notice the plank in your own eye? Or how is it that you say to your brother, Let me remove the splinter out of your eye, and see a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you shall see clearly to remove the splinter out of your brother's eye. Remove the plank from your own eye. Judge yourself first. That moment that you begin to judge others, stop. Look inside and make sure that you yourself are not engaged in the same thing as them, even if in a different way. Lamentations 3, 38-40 says, Do not the evils and the good come out of the mouth of the Most High? What, should a man complain? A living man because of his sins? Let us search and examine our ways and turn back to Hashem. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Examine yourselves whether you are in faith. Prove yourselves. Or do you not know yourselves that Yeshua Messiah is in you? unless you are disproved. Galatians 6, 4, But let each one examine his own work, and then he shall have boasting in himself alone, and not in another. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23-31 says, For I received from the Master that which I also delivered to you, that the Master Yeshua, in the night in which he was delivered up, took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the renewed covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Master until he comes, so that whoever should eat this bread or drink this cup of the Master unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Master. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, for the one who is eating and drinking unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the master. Because of this, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we were to examine ourselves, we would not be judged. In Exodus 12, we read that no one who was uncircumcised is to eat of the Passover. In the same way, no one who is uncircumcised of heart is to eat of the Passover, according to Paul. This is not a punishment on anyone, but rather a protection. If you enter into the judgment of Yeshua as represented by the bread and the cup, and if you do not have his blood covering your doorposts of your heart, you are drinking God's judgment onto yourself. And this is what getting the leaven out of your house is a picture of. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that the little leaven leavens the entire lump? Therefore cleanse out the old leaven, so that you are a new lump, as you are unleavened. For also Messiah, our Pesach, was slaughtered for us, 
So then let us celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of evil and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Getting rid of the leaven in your house means removing wickedness and corruption, pride and malice in our hearts. It means entering into judgment internally. And if we continue to read in 1 Corinthians 5, we'll find that this is exactly the topic that's under discussion in this passage. Internal judgment within our communities, within the body of Messiah, allowing those on the outside to be judged by God in a way that is fitting for them. And that's the final piece of the story that I want to examine. It's one that I've mentioned before, but that I have not taken any time to stop and truly examine yet. And it's that vengeance belongs to God. This is something that we read in Deuteronomy 32-35, as well as Romans 12-9 and other places. Uh, the fact is that when we, as humans, engage in vengeance, we do so unevenly. We tend to be either too harsh, as in the case of Esau, contemplating his vengeance on Jacob, or we're too soft. If we leave vengeance to God, however, he will repay the right amount at the right time. And what we see beginning in this Parsha is Jacob having God's vengeance enacted upon him. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, judgment. Justice in kind that is so central to the justice system that's laid out in the Torah. Because we humans are bad judges of just weights and measures. We hold some things that do not matter way too highly in esteem. And other things that we should hold highly, we treat lightly. And Yeshua touches on this in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24-30. In another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of the heavens has become like a man who sowed a good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed darnel among the wheat and went away. And when the blade sprouted and bore fruit, then the darnel also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? From where then does it have the darnel? And he said to them, A man, an enemy, did this. And the servant said to him, Do you wish then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the darnel, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I shall say to the reapers, First gather their darnel and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my granary. The servants wished to go out to destroy those who were not wheat, but the master stops them because he knows that humans are awful at judgment. While trying to uproot those who do not belong, we will invariably damage those who do. When it comes to people, we have a hard time at telling the difference between the wheat and the tares. And so vengeance belongs to God. He will reap the harvest in the last days. He will judge men honestly and fairly. Even before then, though, he gives us our due. He uses reality to reflect ourselves to ourselves. He gives us the opportunity to judge ourselves and to reflect on our history and to make the necessary changes. He gives us the opportunity to enter into judgment early, to take on the punishment for our sins through the death of Yeshua, and so to pass from death into everlasting life. Jacob not only deserved this deception, he needed to be deceived. He needed to feel the pain that he had caused his brother so that he could change, so that he could become the man called Israel. 
when we face injustice from others, and when our existence reveals things that are difficult, it's in these moments that we're given the opportunity to see the pain that we have caused in the world and to experience firsthand so that we can change. Because it's only through this judgment and repentance that leads to change that we can become worthy of being called Israel, to be called sons of God. My prayer is that he will make us worthy of the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf and that we will understand and figure out where it is in ourselves that we are failing, where it is that we are evil, that we will be able to identify the death within ourselves. And then, like Jacob, as we'll see in upcoming chapters, that we'll begin to change, that we'll begin to use honest judgment and honest measures, and that we will begin to dare to seek life in all that we do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.